Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, November 19th, we're studying Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. St. Paul writes to his companion in the ministry, Titus, who has been stationed on the island of Crete to appoint pastors to serve the saints of God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippeck. Pastor Philippeck serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippeck, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. It's good to be with you. So as we get started this morning, Pastor Philippeck, we're starting a new book. We're in the book of Titus. What are some of the ins and outs of this book, author, recipient, date, themes, stuff like that, that will help us get started in this book this morning? Yeah, so Titus, the book of Titus is sometimes dated in a variety of different ways, one of them being the fact that it's it's around um, 68 AD. There's kind of a debate among this in scholars, whereas I tend to, to date this book a little earlier, around 63, 65 AD, and the reason for that is the words that Paul uses in the latter half of Titus, chapter 3, verse 12, where, where we're talking about things, and he's urging him to go ahead and you know, come to him at Nicopolis, where he plans to, to spend the winter, so to speak. So if you're, if you're kind of going to spend the winter, and you're going to make plans, and you're thinking about these things, you're probably not doing that in prison, um, which is kind of the argument for 68, it's, uh, the dating of in 68, that it's, it's sort of almost right before Paul dies. But if you're in, in prison in, in Rome right before you die, you're, you're not going to make plans to, to spend the winter anywhere. You kind of know better than that. So right around 63 to 65 A.D., and then within that, I would continue to, to go ahead and simply say that uh, Titus himself has actually appeared before in the book of Acts, though he was unnamed in all of this. Uh, he was at the Jerusalem Council in the book of Acts having a controversial discussion about circumcision. And in this whole controversy of circumcision, he's also with Timothy. And believe it or not, it's sort of interesting here, but uh, believe it or not, in all of this, Timothy and, and Titus are, are sort of known for this controversy of circumcision. It's sort of a defining mark for both of these men. Um, starting in, in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, you get a, a little idea of this when, when Timothy is, according to both Luke and Paul, uh, notes that he is, in fact, circumcised. Whereas... Um, you get into the discussion there, and that, that kind of makes sense, right? His mother was of Jewish genealogy, and him being a Jewish convert, Timothy, was a, was a missionary companion of St. Paul, and he is sent to preach then to the Jews. Whereas, conversely, Titus, 
who is also a missionary companion of St. Paul, is of the Gentiles. And he is actually from the region of, of Crete. So in all of these different things, then in, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 3, it, it, Scripture makes a point of saying that Titus is uncircumcised. And again, that makes sense given his genealogy. But in all of these things, he occurs in a handful of other places, Second uh, Corinthians 7, Second Timothy 4, uh, verse 10, you know, he comes to Paul in Macedonia and then departs to Dalmatia. But in all of these things, both Timothy and Titus's ministry is marked by the circumcision controversy, which actually brings to, is brought to light in Crete than in the book of Titus. But that controversy there, the reason I bring that up is not simply just because they're marked by it, but that actually says something about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins and life of the world. In these two men, both Timothy and Titus, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, we see the embodiment of the love of Christ for all people. That is to say, Jesus came for all people, both Jews, circumcised, and Gentiles uncircumcised. Additionally, I also kind of want to note on this one that, um, well, the reason that um, St. Timothy and St. Titus, this, this particular circumcision discussion is happening, is, is important because the people whom you are sent to, you never want to become to them a stumbling block to the gospel to the preaching of the gospel and the hearing of the gospel. So it would make sense that, that you know, Timothy, being circumcised, would be sent to the Jews. And Titus would be sent to the Greeks, uncircumcised. And in this way, I think this is, the, this is the, probably one of the most important things for today's text, is that we do not want to become a stumbling block. Pastors don't want to be a stumbling block to the people they were sent to preach to. And in that whole discussion, then, you get the heart of the qualifications of elders, which we'll talk about later. I mean, this is the issue at stake when we start listing a bunch of things today for, for qualifications. And this belongs to the larger genre of literature known as the pastoral epistles. And the purpose of the pastoral epistles tends to be to instruct and to remind and to encourage and to exhort both pastor and people and Pastor Apple, I think you see all four things in the book of Titus um, for those various purposes. That's a great introduction to the book of Titus as a whole. We are reading for our text today, verses 1 through 9 of the first chapter. Paul begins, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness— in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. 
He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That is our text for today. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Pastor Philippek, we get a greeting from Paul at the beginning of his epistle, as is his custom in his epistles. Mm-hmm. This one is is very detailed. I, I didn't do a, a thorough look back through the other ones, but this, is, it seems, is one of the longer ones where he really starts to lay out already some of the themes that he's going to pick up later in the letter, some of these key terms, some of which we've already seen in the epistles that were written to Timothy, first and second Timothy. Let's just get started with that very first thing he says, Paul, a servant of God, or there's at least in the ESV, there's a little note that says you could also translate that as slave. Why does Paul call himself a servant or even a slave of God? Yeah, this word in the Greek doulos has has either meaning, but um, kind of that idea of bondservant, of slavery, of being beheld to a master. Paul's introduction is very poignant here and very purposeful, as always in any of the books, but here especially for what he's driving at. He calls himself a slave of God. That is to say that a slave or a doulos, a bondservant, is someone who has been purchased, right? They are not their own. They were bought with a price. And in this case, Paul, and all Christians for that matter, in becoming um, slaves of God, picking up on Romans language here as well that he uses in that same word there, we have been purchased, Paul has been purchased, with the blood of Christ. Not gold, not silver, but, you know, the precious blood of Jesus. And now that he has been purchased by the blood of Jesus, high and lifted up upon the cross, he now belongs to God. God, our very Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is Paul's master. And not just Paul's master, but I think here's the nice nuance of the progression. Paul's going to progress through these things sequentially, kind of like, uh, oh, I don't know, trying to take a drink from a, a fire hydrant, right? I mean, it's just <laughs> pouring out at all these words, and they're so rich and meaningful. But there is a, a fast progression to this. So he's a servant of God, one who belongs to, one who is, um, whose master is Jesus, and he was sent. The master, Christ, sent him. That's what the word uh, apostolus, apostle, means, a sent one. An apostle of Jesus Christ. So Jesus sends him to do some preaching. But you must ask then, well, what is he to preach? I mean, it's okay, he's a servant of God, a slave of God, and Christ sends him to preach. Well, quite frankly, those two words in tandem mean something. Very rich and very poignant. Because he is a slave, because Christ is his master, he must only preach and only do what the master himself has given him and called him to do. To do anything else would incur the master's punishment and would be unfaithful to the master. He would be found misrepresenting the master. So he must do and say only what the master gives him. And as it continues to progress, preaching what the master has said and living as the master, which we'll talk about as godliness, living as the master has given him to live, 
in this way, the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth will be strengthened. It is for their sake that Paul has not only become um, a slave, but a sent one. He has sent for them for their sake that the faith of God may be strengthened in them. God's elect, his chosen ones, those who are marked with the cross on their forehead and on their hearts through the waters of baptism, and that their knowledge of the truth may be strengthened. Now, the interesting thing about knowledge of the truth, um, those words have been used before. They're used in the book of Timothy. They're used in the book of John. God desires all people to be saved in 1 Timothy 2 and come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus himself uses this word truth um, concerning the Holy Spirit. He will guide you into all truth. So one begins to ask, what, what is truth in this instance? And when we think of truth, man, we think of propositions. We think of statements that we can vote thumbs up, thumbs down. I agree, I disagree. True, false. That's how we think of truth, right? So the sun is shining, true or false, right? We think of statements of proposition. And we forget that the knowledge of the truth is not just intellectual. Truth itself, getting guided into all truth, is all about a person. For Jesus says, even before speaking of the Spirit, in John chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So truth is a person. And to come to the knowledge of the truth actually means that salvation is found. You know that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins and the life of the world. There is no other name under heaven. And everything that he has said and everything that he has done from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, that is the truth. Jesus, his word, what he says, what he does, that is all the knowledge of the truth. So Paul is sent to preach Jesus Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins and the life of the world and lead a life that accords in godliness. And what does that mean? Now look, look at those words, accord. Accord, uh, abide in, agree with, um, all of these different words, kind of synonyms here, right? So he's sent to preach and teach all that Jesus is and all that he has said, and he's sent to live a life worthy of that preaching, worthy of the gospel. Now this, this means that Paul himself is under the foot of the cross, that Paul is to be a servant of all, he is to sacrifice as Christ has sacrificed, and he must also depend solely upon the Master for all that he needs, all his provision, all that he cares, all that he has. And in this way, when the saints hear the word of Christ, and they see that fellow before them, Paul, a pastor, a sent one, the apostle, they actually come to know the truth and more firmly be strengthened in the faith, clinging ever only to Jesus. I'm going to stop there because it continues to progress, but I'm sure you probably want to jump in and say a word or two at least. I mean, there's, there is just so much there, Pastor Philip. Heck, as, as you and I were talking before we, we became, we got on air, I mean, we could have talked just through these first three verses because Paul packs them with so much. And, and just to, I'll just simply point out as you did already, the, 
connections with the other pastoral epistles. That phrase, the knowledge of truth, was a big one in 1 Timothy. And this word godliness showed up several times in 1 Timothy as well. Now, and I think that's where you stopped. So, so I'm going I'm to I'm, I'm let you keep going. And, and one of the things that I also want to highlight as you, as you continue on, which we saw previously in 2 Timothy, mm-hmm. is this... I don't know if contrast is probably not the right word, but the interaction with the way God made his promise before the ages began, and also then with the way that he has manifested it now at the proper time in preaching. We've seen Paul talk about that previously. He's going to bring it up here. It's a pretty key interaction. I think it's very helpful for us as Christians. I know you're going to get to it. So I'll let you you pick up again with the hope of eternal life. Sure. So seeing this and hearing this Jesus preached, coming to the knowledge of truth, strengthening your faith, receiving the forgiveness of sins, living under the foot of the cross, actually has a goal. You know, sometimes we forget this and we stop, and with the forgiveness of sins, Jesus died so that I may be forgiven. Well, that's great, and it is. That is true. But that forgiveness has a larger goal yet that sometimes we eclipse in Christianity, even in Lutheranism. And Luther picks up on this in the second article, meaning uh, the, the meaning of the Apostles' Creed, second article, his third actual paragraph, after the purchase and one that I, you know, purchase on me perishable things such as gold or silver, innocent suffering, bitter death. Why did he do all that? And Luther continues, so that I may be his own and live with him in his kingdom, serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, blessedness, issues, he's risen from the dead, lives and reigns into all eternity. This is most certainly true. So this has a goal, and that goal, that goal is way, way back to the Garden of Eden. It was there before the ages began. It was life with your living and eternal Lord. We were created to die. We were created to be in his fellowship. No sin, no suffering, to be utterly dependent upon Christ, to be there in the garden living and dwelling with God. But, but we lost that. When we stretched out the hand and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin and death entered this world, and Adam was ousted from the garden. No longer could we walk and talk with God. And yet, it's not like Scripture progresses. It's not like God's plan unfolds somehow that, okay, you messed up, so, so let's try something else. Try to be obedient. Oh, no, that didn't work. Let's go to plan, plan oh, let's try C. Maybe we'll go with sacrifices? Can, 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 oh, no, you guys are still messing that up. You're still not living a good life. Oh, let's go with plan D. Jesus, my son. Oh, good, good, there it is. No, 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 no. Jesus is always plan A. From the beginning, God knows that in the fall of the sin, in the fall of sin, we are going to sever ourselves. We are going to separate us. There's going to be an enmity put between us and God that wasn't there in the beginning. We were friends with God, and we were an enmity with the serpent. But when we ate of the tree, now we are friends of the serpent, and we are at enmity with God. So what are we going to do about that? Oh, nothing. But God's going to do something about it. He's going to do something we can't. So he gives a promise in Genesis 3.15 to Adam and his wife. Speaking to the serpent, though, he says, I will put enmity. There's that word enmity. I will put division. For, for you to have to put enmity there, that means there must be a relationship of friendship or camaraderie, something that exists there. Because God's going to do something about that friendly relationship. He's going to cause a division. He's going to put enmity between you, serpent, and between mankind, the woman, right? Between your offspring and her offspring, and not just plural, he will crush his head. So the whole Old Testament then, 
from the beginning, where is this promised child who's going to crush the head of the serpent and give us back the very presence of God? And this is unfolds throughout all of the Old Testament. We're waiting for this promise. The genealogy is traced back to this. And finally, it's Jesus. So it's not like this hope of eternal life. And when we say hope, Christians don't mean the same thing like um, don't, don't mean it as a wish, like this world uses hope. Oh, I hope it doesn't rain today. That is, I'm not sure if it will or won't. If it, I, I don't want it to. I, I wish it would. I hope it. No, when we say hope, we mean it as a certain promise. We mean that God never lies. He has spoken it, and so he will do it. So this hope, he spoke back to Adam and his wife in the garden. What caused Adam, after hearing, you will surely die, and dust you are, and dust you return. It's what caused Adam to name his wife Eve, meaning the mother of the living. Now, if you just heard I'm going to die, I wouldn't name my wife the mother of the living. I might name her the mother of the dead ones, yeah? Which actually means that Adam believes his promise, this, this hope of eternal life. And this hope of eternal life, it began in the ages, and it was accomplished. The, the salvation and the life accomplished there at the cross. It would be forever fulfilled in the resurrection, but it comes to you now. It is manifested to you here and now today in his word. That is in preaching. So actually Christ, this, this promise that started in the word, it started back in the beginning and was there when Jesus walked on earth, fulfilled there, and will be fulfilled in all its glory. It's given to you here and now today in the preaching of Paul and uh, Titus and, and those whom he will elect. So that's kind of the progression of the first couple of verses here. And and then that preaching, that's what has been entrusted to Paul by the command of God our Savior. That's a, another key term that's going to show up several times in this book, that God is Savior. And then he identifies to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Pastor Philip, we just got to about four minutes here on this side of the break. I want to save the qualifications for elders that sometimes called for five through nine for the other half. Give us a little bit on, on Titus being Paul's child in the faith and then the grace and peace. Absolutely. So sort of, as we have talked about here, maybe one good connection to flow into this is for the hearers of Paul's day, whom this letter is being written to, and Titus, and all of the congregation, they're in Crete. For them, they are assured. They are assured that that every word that God has spoken to them through this apostle, whom God has sent and made his own, a very slave of God, is trustworthy and true. So when Paul says this, it is as Christ has said it himself, because he has, through the mouth of his instrument, Paul. So they can be certain of this. The connection for the hearers today, that same salvation and message, came through preaching back then, and guess what? It comes to us the same way. This Jesus is delivered to us in the divine service every week through the reading, through the preaching of the word of Christ, through the administration of the sacraments. So here in time, Christ comes to you in the same way he did when they were in Paul. You have a chosen instrument, a pastor who is sent to preach, and faith comes by hearing, and in that hearing, in that preaching, people are led to the knowledge of the truth, right? So Titus then is called a true child. Now, it's somewhat confusing historically, uh, and it can kind of go both ways. How do you take the word 
true child. And there are two kind of ways that this goes about to see it in light of Acts 15 and 16. Um, like Timothy, Titus uh, very well could have been instructed by Paul. Paul is a spiritual father to him. He teaches him. And you would get that on the missionary journeys. That would be an appropriate understanding of these things. So to be a true child means Paul is Paul was his, his pastor, so to speak. He he, he catechized. He, he taught the faith to Titus, as he did Timothy. So that's one option. The other option is, is to simply say that they share that common faith, and the one who came before, meaning the one who is in authority over and, and was a Christian and made a slave first of God, uh, and the one who gets to watch over the rest, is Paul. So whether you take it as Paul as instructor, and then the one who has authority over, or whether you just take it as the one that has authority over, they share the same Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. They share the same office, and they share the same preaching. They are both slaves of God, and by that preaching comes none other than the knowledge of the truth, which is the grace and peace of God. The grace and peace of God. Let me start with, with peace, right? Peace is, peace is a big term. Um, peace be with you. <laughs> and also with you. Those, yes, exactly, right? We say that in, in the divine service. And we also have that whole peace in the upper room with Jesus. Is then On the night in which he was betrayed, we have the, the glory of God. Uh, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, right? The angelic song. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Well, why is this? Well, this goes back to that, that division, that separation we talked about, right? We're, we are not at peace. We are at war with God. We are enemies, as Romans tells us, chapter 5. We are enemies. Genesis tells us the same thing, so on and so forth. We could go through all kinds of passages, but we are enemies of God. But to be at peace with God means that Jesus, our Savior, has actually done something to reconcile us with God. So that Savior and that peace, we have peace with God, meaning God is not looking to throw us into hell. He's not looking to punish us, not because, oh, we've lived a godly life and we've done all this stuff. No, because of our Savior Jesus Christ, the knowledge, the, 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 the truth himself. That peace is on earth in Jesus Christ, and he gives that grace. So grace and peace is where a child of God always lives. Lives in the mercy of God, knowing nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And in that cross I have been reconciled to the Father through the death of Jesus. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, November 19th. We're studying Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. We've got Pastor Adam Filipek with us. He serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Filipek, we 
on the first side of the break covered the introduction from Paul, all of those wonderful things that he lays out, giving a hint of what's still coming in this letter. He's extended grace and peace to Titus, his child in the faith, and then he jumps right in. Says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So before we look at the qualifications he lists, who are these elders? Why does Paul want Titus to appoint them in every town? Yeah, that is a good question, because in our 21st century American context, you hear the word elder and you typically equate it with a lay person, a man, who has been identified in the congregation, voted upon by the congregation in the voters' assembly to hold this position that helps the pastor, right? Helps uh, maybe distribute communion, uh, maybe make calls to people who haven't been in church or who are sick. You know, we typically think about this, this elder as a, a layman in the congregation that has been elected by the voting body. But that is not in office That particular way of thinking about elder is foreign to Scripture. It's not an office that's in Scripture. In Titus chapter 1, St. Paul says to Titus, you know, that same thing that you read just moments ago, this is why I left in Crete, to appoint, and the Greek word there is presbyteros, which is translated elders. Now here's the thing. Down in verse 7, he's going to reiterate this, but he's not going to use, he's not going to use the word Presbyteros. He's not going to use elders. Foreign overseer. He's going to now this gr- Greek word here, overseer. We translated in English overseer. You would think it's the same word that uh, Timothy used, right? Back in his qualifications in in chapter three, for if you, someone desires to be an overseer. There's a couple of different words here that are at play. One is one is always presbyteros, elder. One is episcopus, which means you know bishop, overseer. Uh, which is what Timothy uses. And there's this lesser one, but it gets used, and it gets used very intentionally, and that is, that is this word poimain. And this poimain Greek word here is, means shepherd. In the Latin, um, poimain, or shepherd, is where our English derivative for the word pastor comes from. So the English um, takes its word for shepherd, from the Latin, which which is pastor, and um, the Greek word for that is poimain. So he leaves them to appoint presbyteros, elders, and then in verses 5 and 7, they're the, talking about the same people using different words, but using them interchangeably. So you can think of elder as pastor, and you can think of overseer as pastor, poimain, presbyteros, elder, pastor, episcopus, you know, bishop, they're all synonymous. They're all the same word. They're all interchangeable uh, in terms of the office of the holy ministry. So what we're talking about is not the present-day man-made position of elder or the layman elected to help the pastor. What we are talking about is the office of the holy ministry, Christ's office, in which a man a pastor is called into. So that's kind of the first thing is, is to see that, um, that this is talking about the office of the Holy Ministry. This is talking about pastors. So I left you then in Crete to appoint pastors, to bring order 
<laughs> what's going on? Well, well, what is exactly going on that we need order brought to? Well, now, Titus is left to appoint to ordain pastors in the towns of the island of Crete. That is where Paul has been preaching, and Crete is a, Crete is a fairly large island. So there's not one church or one town in Crete. There, there's many towns, and in each of those towns, as preaching has gone out from the slave the apostle whom Jesus had sent there to preach, right? So Paul's preaching. And when preaching happens, the Spirit of the Lord is living and active through the Word of Christ, and it does what it says. It's performative, right? It's, it's effective. It creates faith in the hearers that are hearing the message of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, preached. Well, that is, that is good, right? That is the goal of it all, that, that they come to the knowledge of the truth and that their faith is strengthened by Christ and, and what, has, what they see and hear from his sent one. But now having had many Christians come to faith, become Christian, having received baptisms, and now actually being Christian, these churches, these people in the various towns are in disorder, because they don't really have anyone to preach the Word of God to them and give them the body and blood of Christ in the sacrament of Holy Communion. So you got a big island, and you got one guy, Titus, who's left there. Well, Titus can't do all of this for the island himself. There's just no way to do it in an efficient manner. So he has to tell you what. I'm leaving you here because in all the places that I preached at, there are Christians who need regular Word and Sacrament ministry. Or point elders, ordain pastors, so that the word of God may continue to, to be preached and their faith may be strengthened, right? That appointing goes back to still uh, that verse, it, it resonates with, with what Paul has left there. It resonates with the apostleship of Paul. It's that whole reason they're there for the sake of the faith of God's elect through the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacrament. So, you know, you got all these towns, so go through and, and put these things, organize this so that they regularly get to hear Jesus Christ crucified and risen and receive his body and blood. Do that. So that's why Titus was left there in Crete. Now the Paul continues from that and says, well, okay, Titus, go appoint these pastors what kind of men am I looking for, Titus asks, and that's what Paul answers. He begins to list qualifications for these pastors, and we encountered a similar list in that first epistle to Timothy. First Timothy chapter 3 lists qualifications for, as you said, overseers, bishops, again, pastors. Paul does so again here, and we've got quite the list. We can look at any number of these terms. Pastor Philip, I guess as you start taking us into the these terms, and I know we won't have time for all of them, but I think no. you, you mentioned at the very beginning as you were laying out who Titus was and also bringing Timothy into the discussion a little bit, there's an overarching theme that connects back to that discussion. So get us into that conversation. Sure. So just to remind you kind of where the big theme is of all of this, with, with our discussion previously of circumcision and uncircumcision, and Timothy, who was circumcised, being sent to Jews who were circumcised, and Titus, who was uncircumcised, being sent to Gentiles who were uncircumcised, the overarching thought that I gave you was that the person who is preaching should not be an obstacle or stumbling block that gets in the way of the preaching and hearing of the gospel. So 
So these qualifications are meant for that very purpose. And we can talk a lot about these different qualifications. I think he gives two general qualifications, and his first qualification is the, about the man himself being above reproach. And then I think we revisit that discussion about the man above reproach and what it means to be above reproach in verses 7 and following, because we mention above reproach again, and then we get a list of things. So the first part is he's got to be above reproach, whatever that means. We haven't quote, fully gotten to it yet. And then also, so here's the man, but then also here's the family who is under the man. Both of these things have to be in order. Meaning, going back to verse 2, the godliness factor, meaning not that they live under the foot of the cross, yes, that they confess their sins like everybody else and receive the grace and mercy of God. Yes, it cannot be any other way. Right? You couldn't have a pastor who said, well, this is just Jesus is for you guys, but I don't need him because I'm perfect. So you guys do this stuff, and I don't need this. I'm only doing this for you. <laughs> like, what would what would a parishioner what would what would a Christian say about a man who says that and uh, how would that affect the person whom the man is preaching, namely Jesus Christ and Him crucified? That's the heart of this. And also, then, so, so the man being above reproach, we've got all kinds of things. Just simply above reproach for now, before we get into any little things that you guys might want to get into in terms of specifics of above reproach, he should not be able to be accused of scandalous living in any way publicly. Mm. Above reproach, he should be blameless before the eyes of the public. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean, I don't mean that this man cre- commits no sin. No, we already talked about living under the foot of the cross, being sent by Jesus, all of those things that have gone up to here. But what I do mean is, you know, for instance, husband of one wife then. This also goes to reproach and family. I shouldn't be able to say, hey, don't commit adultery, guys. This is what our Lord says. You know, don't look at a little woman lustfully. Don't do anything else. That's, that's you guys here. And I have my wife, and let's say I've got um, nine other girlfriends in the town, and I've got my arm around them. Or I decide to take a second wife, something like that. And, and, his, and his whole point on, on that is, what does that do to the gospel? So you're saying, do not commit adultery, but you yourself are actively and publicly committing adultery, and that matters because it's an obstacle for them hearing the gospel. That is to say, hey, look, you tell us not to do this, but you're doing this, so why should we believe anything you say? Right, God does not lie, so don't make him out to be a liar in your life, you know, in, in your public life. So, husband of one wife, I also want to know here how, notice how Paul just assumes here in the discussion. He has discussions of this in other books, which we could get into. Husband of one wife um, is very poignant in whom God calls to be pastors, Despite what our day and age might do with this, the husband of one wife, there was plenty of unfaithfulness and homosexuality and all kinds of gender issues back in Paul's day, especially in Greece, right? Corinth, Crete, these are, these are rampant. But Paul says here, husband of one wife, it, it's a very specific gender. It's a very specific office. This is Christ's office who came in the flesh, and the one who represents him is also there in the flesh 
as a man, a chosen instrument. So, so Paul assumes that pastors are going to be men in this particular passage. He has discussions on this as why this should be the case and everything else in other passages, but husbands of one of one wife is very specific. So these men, these pastors also, not only are they just to have one wife and, you know, like divorced and all that sort of stuff that we can get into um, in our, in our context here and also in today's context, but just husband of one wife and their children. Their, his children are believers Right? They actually believe the gospel, and they're not. They themselves, the children, are also not open to charges of, of debauchery or even to charges of insubordination. Because if I look at that and I say, these children are running rampant, they're doing whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it, acting like, like a bunch of heathens, that actually affects the gospel. Because the people of the town, the people of the church can say, he can't keep his own family in order. How can he even begin to care for the family of God when he doesn't do those things in his own family? So, so these, are, these are aspects where he says, look, when, when you're appointing elders, this is what I want you to look for in accordance with godliness. That publicly, there wouldn't be anything that anyone would be able to accuse them of in their personal life or in their family life before the eyes of the world. And that these men also will be slaves of Christ sent ones, not apostles, but, um, you know, pastors, poimens, presbyteros, that that will preach the same Jesus and live the same sort of life that that they see me an apostle living. Because really what the office of the pastor is, it's not a man's office to take, to seize, to do anything with. It's Christ's office. He ascends and he says, I'm going to the Father. He breathes on his, uh, his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. So as the Father has sent me, so I have sent you. So the Father sends the Son. The Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit, accomplishes salvation. He ascends to the right hand of God. And how does he continue to make Christians? Through sending these men that continue in this ministry preaching. So this is one big, big office, one big Christ, and it all belongs to Christ, and they are servants of that Master. I really appreciate you bringing out the the term slave servant again with Christ as master, because I think that that's such a helpful way to consider the office of the holy ministry, that it too falls underneath the master Christ. And so it is only given what he gives to hand out, only given to say what he says to say. And and Pastor Philip, like there's there's obviously tons of, of terms here that we could yeah. spend any time in, but, but maybe thinking more broadly, particularly with this word above reproach, which as you said, Paul uses twice here, and he, he gives as the man relates to his family and then the man personally, maybe just to, to spend a few minutes wrestling with where does that line get crossed? Because as you said, the pastor's a sinner. The pastor lives mm-hmm. underneath the forgiveness that Christ gives. So he's not sinless. Where, I mean, it's, is there a higher standard for a pastor? Where does where does a man cross that line such that he is no longer above reproach? Just some some wrestling with that for a little bit here. Yeah, I think this is hard. Our qualifications do help us a little bit, but let me just say that the office of the pastor, um, which is not the office of the pastor, it's the office of the holy ministry, the office of Christ. What is expected of the pastor is nothing different than what is expected of every Christian. Like I said at the start of this, we are all slaves to Christ. 
We either are slaves to sin, death, and the devil, or we are slaves to Christ. But Christ has purchased us with his own blood, so we no longer belong to sin. We no longer belong to death. We no longer belong to the devil. So every vocation, every aspect of a life is always framed this way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, see to it that you submit to your husbands, right? Husbands have the wife, Christ loves the church. So as the church submits to Christ, so also wives, so on and so forth. So notice this, even, even the marriage aspect. Children aspect. We are all sons of God through faith in Christ, for as many of you were baptized. So all of these languages of being made a Christian, of living in this, is ultimately a nuanced form of you are slaves of God. And in this particular vocation, here is what that sacrifice, that service, that loving one another looks like. Well, I will think is, what I will say is that while nothing... Um, Different is expected of a pastor in terms of their life. Perhaps if you took a little magnification glass and held it to your eye, that's how I might, that's how I might um, actually, actually look at a pastor. That, that this office is, well, godliness of life is expected of all people. This man especially is the representative of Jesus in that he is the instrument of God who preaches Jesus, who visits the people while they are sick, who gives them Holy Communion, the very body and blood of Christ. So when the people look at Jesus, or when the people look at the pastor and the preaching and the administration of the sacraments, they can say, Christ actually cares for me. He's actually present with me. How do I know that? I just heard him speak through the mouth of that, yeah, sinful red-headed man, who is Adam Philippeck, but, but not the sinful red-headed man, the, the, the pastor, Pastor Philippeck, who fills that office of Christ. Through that man, Christ speaks, Christ absolves, Christ baptizes, Christ forgives. So it's not a different expectation, but we are held, maybe, we are looked at through magnification glasses, we are held to a higher standard. So no Christian should be quick-tempered, or arrogant, or drunk, or violent. Nobody should be out to, oh, I'll gladly come and and help you out, I'll gladly love and serve you if, if you give me 100 bucks. Well, you shouldn't be always looking for money for something. You should love one another as Christ has loved you. And in the, in the office of pastor especially, that is, that is very poignant because our Lord Jesus did not even wash his, have his disciples wash his feet on the night in which he was betrayed. He stooped down. He washed his disciples' feet. He gave them a, an example of what it, lo- what it looks like for love and service, but it gave them a new command. Love one another as I have loved you. So all of these different things, being hospitable, being welcoming, um, all of these different things are expected of every Christian, but especially of the pastor, because I would argue that when you go back, just a simple hospital visit, when somebody comes and visits you at the hospital, you can say, oh, my friend came and visited me, all this sort of stuff. But the tenor of a pastoral visit is wholly different, because they're in that room Christ is being preached. Christ is being proclaimed. Christ is being given in word and sacrament. And if I didn't do that, you would, you would say, well, what was the point of you coming, right? It's nice to see you, Pastor, but, but you know, do what, you come, what you've been called to do. Give me Jesus. So all of these things are kind of an intensification of that. Um, and, and we don't want to do anything that would, that would bring an obstacle into somebody's way of hearing the gospel. And that's kind of what that is. The line is crossed, like I told you, publicly, you know, if, if I'm blatantly living as if, what I want, what I mattered, or that I mattered most, and what I said, you know, in, on a Sunday morning didn't matter. My life publicly before the world, man, I don't care. I'm going to live it however I want, contrary to the gospel, and I'm not going to care. That's the line. 
Right? That's the line. It's that public, I don't care. It's in the heart. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I don't care who sees it. So I gave you that example of you know, putting my arm around and having different girlfriends. Well, that, that would be an intentionally me saying, I don't care about adultery, what, you know, whatever. I want to do what I want to do. What I want to do, and I, I don't care. Yeah, okay, that's for you guys, but it's not for me. Like, that is an affrontal, I'm publicly saying and living as if God did not matter and as if my word mattered most. Right. And it, it should be in sync. Right. And I mean, that, that connects to what you're saying about the not putting an obstacle in the way of the gospel and in the matter of who's the master. It, the pastor right. needs to live as if God is the master. And, and and as you're saying, I mean, that kind of example, that's the exact opposite. The pastor's flipped it on its head. And, and all of this, I think, just briefly, I mean, it requires humility on all of our parts, both on the mm-hmm. congregation and the pastors, so that, that we would approach it with that starting point, that God is master. I'm his servant. He has called me into his kingdom by his grace that I might be his own and live under him in this kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. And with that kind of humility, I think we're we're in a better spot to see where that line is and, and to make these decisions on, on who should be pastor and, and who shouldn't, again, so that the gospel goes forth without any obstacle from the man who has been being placed in that office. Thank you for that discussion, Pastor Philippek. We've got we've got about five and a half minutes, and I, I want to make sure we we get this last verse because it's just yeah. so important. Again, I'll, I'll read it and let you comment on it, Pastor Philippek. Verse nine: He that is the pastor must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Help. Use that verse, wrap things up for us this morning with everything that's there. Yeah, so previously we just had a a discussion about everything that someone could look at his life of godliness. But now we're moving into that, again, that that whole heart aspect, what does it mean to be a a, a servant? So in order to do all this, right, in order to to be above reproach, it, it doesn't come from you. It comes from you... Not at all, actually. It comes from holding fast by the Spirit of Christ that has been given to you and preached to you that word. Hold fast to the word. That is what matters. That is what makes pastors and people righteous and holy. And the only way you can ever be above reproach is, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then to strive to fight against that, right? Through the Spirit of God in you, it's not you who strive, but God who is at work in you both to will and to do according to His good purpose. So I'm fighting against those temptations. So hold fast to the Word, because it's the only trustworthy thing. That's the only thing that never lies. It's the only certainty you have. And what a joy, right? To wonder, oh, am I God's child or not? I don't know after all I've sinned. What a comfort to know that God never lies. He says to me, I baptize you. You are my child. So hold fast to the word taught to you. It's the only thing that you have that's trustworthy, that's true, that's able to save, give grace and peace and mercy to you. And not only to you, first, holding on to that for you, but even that has, has a goal as well beyond you. It's so that you may be able to give this same Jesus to all those entrusted to your care. You may be able to teach them the knowledge of the truth, 
who this Jesus is from Genesis to Revelation, what he has done for you, how he comes to you, how you may depend on him even when your eyes can't see it and you are tempted to give up and not believe the goodness of God still, you remember that there at the cross, God shows you the greatest goodness ever. He gives his life unto death so that you may not die, but that you may live. That is the free gift of God. So you receive that. Also then teach that. Give instruction in sound doctrine. And sound, we, we mean the same thing as the, as the slave master sort of thing. As everything I, ha- I have taught to you, Titus, and everything that the appointed elders, the, the pastors, have been taught, they teach that same Jesus. They teach that same trustworthy word, and they live that same godly life, so that those people may see that, that they may hear that, that they may come to faith and be strengthened in the faith, so that they too may become um, slaves or, or servants of the, of the Master, that they may be instructed. And man, oh man, right now, the sound doctrine that's being disrupted, uh, and we'll get on this with your next guest, but it's people who are demanding that if you want to be saved, you've got to be circumcised. And now we get into the whole thing in chapter 10, uh, all these un, un doc, ungodly doctrines and things like this, and Titus is going to say, no, 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 hold fast to the doctrine. There, there is salvation in no one but Jesus Christ and him alone, and use those that sound doctrine to rebuke all of those who come and preach otherwise. So as to say, guard your congregation. Teach them Jesus, ever only always Jesus and protect them from the ravenous wolves that seek to devour them. Be the poimain. Be the shepherd of the good shepherd. Be the pastor so that this flock of God is not devoured. I think even though we don't have the, the, the whole shepherd sheep language, I think that use of poimain is very poignant because he's done this before in Acts 20. He's done this in Timothy. So I think this use of point Maine has to has that whole entrenchment of being able to guard the sheep and making sure that they, they hear the voice of their good shepherd, that they are instructed in this voice, and that they're not uh, to wander from this. And he'll say rebuke, not just rebuke, not like, oh, stop, but rebuke sharply. Like, this is a matter of life and death. To believe other than Christ is to die, but to believe in Christ is to have life and have it abundantly. Pastor Adam Filipek is the pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, helping us this morning with Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Pastor Filipek, thanks for being our guest this morning. Thank you. This is a matter of life and death. In sin, there is death, but in sin forgiven, there is life, and that life is found in Christ, the crucified, risen, and ascended Savior, preached for you by your pastor. He bears the words of life because he bears the words of Christ. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.